and this is episode two of Wandering Man, and this time we're in uh, West Carmarthen. I'm out on a bright, slightly windy October day in, in Carmarthen, in southwest Wales. I'm walking along a, a road that sort of half exists, the new link road that's been built around the uh, uh, part of West Carmarthen, really to serve a whole whole area of new housing that's being built and will be built over the next few years and thought of doesn't exist as far as I know it hasn't got a name yet depending on how up to date your GIS system things are it may be showing or it may not it's a strange thing where some people know about it but a lot of people don't I have to say on the basis of its uh, level of traffic at the moment it's not really needed yet that really roads first well, I said in my last podcast I wanted to uh, talk a bit about psychogeography as a concept where it came from and so uh, that's what I'm going to do while I'm walking along. The nice thing about this road at the moment is uh, right obviously as I said it's right on the edge of the town and uh, though it's basically it's uh, a rural landscape through which this uh, road has been built which uh, obviously probably be better if the landscape was there without the load but it does at least give you a chance to have a look. So at the moment I say I've walked out of the uh, the campus and now into green pasture where the hedgerows are fairly tightly clipped mostly um, but there are also within hedges there are um, mature trees um, um, but certainly yeah, sort of a mixture of very mature trees so um, if you were painting the picture of the Carmarthen rural landscape then this is what you would show I can't actually see any at the moment but this is actually the uh, uh, cow pasture <coughs> that's the eco- eco- rural economy here and one of the uh, the reasons I like to go out for a walk at lunch times is because uh, I find being out among green things, natural things, is, uh, gives you a feeling of, of openness, relaxation, very calming. Not that I've had a stressful morning, um, but even so there's a difference between sitting in an office, dealing with emails and phone calls and whatever, um, even if it's, my, as it can case my case, it's my own office and I have to share. And uh, so yes, it's, uh, I wouldn't say I've been oppressed by surrounding humanity all morning, but even so, there was a very different feel to suddenly being outside. A uh, mixture of sunshine, wind on your face, and uh, being able to see things which are not obviously man-made, artificial I suppose I should say, um, has a beneficial effect on my mood um, and there is some I believe there's some psychological evidence that we respond positively to the green parts of the colour spectrum which if you believe in uh, evolutionary psychology um, would make perfect evolutionary sense um, I'll probably come back to that another time. 
that why evolutionary psychology is uh, it's a bit like just those stories I, I could come up with a quote a quick once that said the existence of evolutionary psychologists demonstrate that at some point in the past there must have been an evolutionary advantage to talking politics uh, anyway I say I'll talk about that another time and um, today talking about psychogeography it's one of those uh, rare terms where you can actually pinpoint precisely when it was invented um, so what I'll do is I'll talk through the theory of um, how it was originally invented and then talk a bit later, talk later on about the uh, the way that concept has been shifted in meaning and applied in a slightly different way uh, in the more recent past. Okay, so um, it was invented by uh, a French uh, philosopher, a Guy Debord, or Guy Debord, as he probably would call himself, um, but I won't, I won't uh, try to do the accent. I was once fluent in French, um, but uh, I found I've been learning Welsh for the last ten, 10 or more years, and I found that all I knew about French has been displaced by what I now know about Welsh. So, uh, so yes, so he's a philosopher uh, writing in, uh, in post-war France, and he was a member of the Situationist International, who were a group of artists, philosophers, with a very uh, explicit political alignment uh, towards uh, to the Marxism. So they were basically trying to look at the role of art within society, um, particularly within capitalist society. And one of the key points they, they drew from Marx was the, was the concept of alienation, the fact that uh, in a capitalist society the the workers um, became distant, separated from the things they created. Um, and in particular, there was the situationists highlighted the link between mass market entertainment um, and basically turning what used to be the, if you like, the worker artists who would make things for themselves, things like, I guess, well, folk music, storytellers, storytelling, um, dancing I suppose, yes, yeah, so essentially the uh, participatory arts um, and instead of that that's been replaced with arts where they're simply a consumer of mass-produced material, whether it's written material like magazines and so on, or whether it's the, the particularly films. Um, and I suppose the broadcast media as well. The idea is that there's that, that alienation, that separation uh, between the, the workers and artistic practice. And, uh, and I suppose you can see you know, there is perhaps some justification with that. Um, interesting to think that uh, in Kingsley Amis's book, Lucky Jim, he's he makes a lot of fun of the uh, of the uh, arty farty crowd that he uh, he falls in with for the pretension of having a weekend where people 
actually get involved and sing magicals and, uh, and have music concerts and so on. As is common with Kingsley Amos, his, um, his spleen is actually directed at his father-in-law who held exactly these ideas. But, in fact, logically, he should have been on, on their side saying, well, this, these, these people are doing a good thing. Um, however pretentious they may feel. Anyway, this is not about King's Amis, he wouldn't want to align himself with French Marxist philosophers. That's an uncontroversial statement. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, so there's this idea that yes, that, that the situationalists wanted to re-engage um, the ordinary person, common person, with art by basically trying to break down the, the barriers between like officially sanctions art, the sort of stuff that goes in art galleries or whatever, and everyday life. So they were keen on the idea of these guerrilla exercises in which the art would intrude into so, the everyday life. And you can see that's the sort of thing which these days has become very popular as sort of a form of public art. Things like uh, poetry on the underground, sort of examples of that. Basically, putting a piece of art where somebody will come across it and hopefully respond to it, not in terms of its cultural baggage, but purely in terms of an immediate response to the art itself. That's the idea. Anyway, so yeah, so, so we're talking about art, we're talking about politics. Uh, how does this fit with geography? Well, Guy Debord invented the term psychogeography to talk about the way that we understand urban spaces. He was talking about urban spaces. Where we understand urban spaces not from the, like the top-down design approach, the way architects and town planners understand urban spaces in terms of what, you know, how, they, how they are designed and laid out and manufactured. But his concern with what it's like to actually be in an urban space. And specifically in the case of um, psychogeography, he's talking about the, the emotions, the feelings and ideas that arise from being in those spaces. I'm just coming up now to, there's some uh, part of the new housing I was talking about. And as is traditional, um, you can hear the, uh, the radio of the builders. Um, one of the rules building is you have to have a radio on. To be fair, I suppose that's partly because um, they're not allowed to wear earphones because they have to be listening out for um, uh, any safety, safety alarms or um, shouts of other people. So uh, that makes a bit of sense. And you can also hear, there we are, there's the reversing horns. Again, that's all part of the soundscape of the of building landscape. So yes, yeah, so his idea is, well, how do you capture this, these um, subjective feelings, the feeling of being in um, a particular urban space? Um, and psychogeography, to say, is what he would call the, the discipline of trying to experience that and then record it in somehow, some way, and analyze it. And they had a lot of uh, methodological issues trying to define uh, a way of formalising that. 
how do you say it's just not one person's idea that they just thought up. So the principal method that they defined was what's, well, what's in, in English has been called the drift. The French is derive, which is the idea of it, a purposeless wandering around a landscape, um, understanding, noting um, one's responses as one does so. He suggested that you ought to do it as a group of three or four people. So basically balance out the impacts of subjectivity, you know, if, sub if somebody is determined to um, hate a particular style of architecture, say, um, then their response to a landscape may not be typical, it may be, it may be just individual. I mean, there's a, there's a general methodological question runs right through modern knowledge creation, modern science, is, well, how can we live with subjectivity and, oh well, and how do we balance subjectivity and objectivity? Well, you know, if we say that everything is subjective, then how can we meaningfully say anything about anything? So, <clears throat> so yes, that's the idea, is the drift. You go through for a journey, it's ideally one without a purpose, and simply soak up the ideas. So that was what it set out in the, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, and you can see it was essentially, without wishing to get into Marxism too much, but the, if you like, the hegemony of um, the existing cultural power of the towns, the town planners, um, that they have the power to make these spaces, but they don't have the power to decide how people will actually behave within them. So there is a sense in which there is a, an element of resistance, of sort of counterculture, pushing back, saying, well, you can build these all you like, but we're going to adapt them to how we feel they ought to be. And there's that sort of opposition, negotiation. Um, so, yes, I think that's all I've exhausted all I know about uh, the origin of psychogeography as a term. I just want to quickly talk a bit, a bit about uh, uh, what's happened to it since. In the 1980s it was picked up by various British writers, uh, Ian Sinclair is one of them, um, who applied it in a slightly different way, but they were thinking more in terms of, um, again, that, that feeling of resistance and negotiation, but what they wanted to pick up was what you might call the unofficial history of, uh, of an area, so that, for example, we might have, I mean, in this case, I suppose we, we are in, in Carmarthen, I'm now on the old turnpike road that used to run from Carmarthen to St. Clair, now being replaced by the A48, which runs about 100 metres away, you just hear it in the background. But yes, yeah, so I'm walking along the turnpike road, and if you look in a history book, you will find a certain amount of core information who built it, why, who paid, paid for it. And that's information, in fact, the official version of the history and, uh, you know, the, the decision to, to replace it with the new road um, is no doubt well do documented in um, government council papers. You know, decisions were made, plans were put forward and so on. So that's, that's the official history. Um, you know, we can put some hard facts and dates 
uh, together on that. I'm not sure anyone has, but uh, they could. Okay, so it's part of that, the officially sanctioned history. Um, and then alongside that, there are the other things which are not recorded in that formal history, um, but which everybody remembers. So, um, as it happens, I don't know anything, any particular stories about this road, but for example, it might be that this is famous as a um, reputed site of a crime of some sort, um, or an alternative story about uh, how the road was laid out, you know, whether there's a myth about it was, it was laid out with a curve because um, there was something in the way that meant they couldn't make it straight. Um, and equally, of course, you know, there's the stories of the, uh, if you talk to the, um, the residents here, and as far as they're concerned, they might think purely in terms of um, their own lives, their own social contact, um, and so they wouldn't necessarily think about it. Other, you know, they may have a story about going chick or treating or something, um, which is not doesn't form part of the formal record, but to the inhabitants is actually more important. And uh, so the idea with the uh, sort of let's say this second wave of psychogeographers is basically trying to be. Um, provide some bottom-up history, not just history, history and geography, um, alongside that first-person narrative of how it feels to move through a space. Um, and uh, again, I, I sort of... So, so that's uh, psychogeography. Um, as I say, it's common. Uh, people like Will Self have picked up on it. Um, basically, anybody who walks around, um, particularly in cities, particularly in London, will probably end up labelling themselves as being a psychogeographer of some sort, um, regardless of their uh, political or philosophical leanings. Um, it's become a term which people seem to understand, even though um, they don't know what it is. Uh, so, yeah, so I suppose the, finally, I suppose I should just talk a bit about the, um, the reasons why I'm dubious about it um, and why I say I'm reluctant to label myself straight out as a psychogeographer. So, first of all, I think there is this fundamental issue. Well, it, it's, it's, it's described about urban spaces, um, but uh, why isn't it true of rural spaces? Um, that's just sort of an interesting question. And related to that is how, how is someone, a person, whoever it is, moving through a landscape, how are they finding out these, uh, these hidden different versions, um, different stories um, that might be lurking? Um, and in most cases you'll find that um, it's actually not unofficial history, it's official history, just perhaps not, not previously considered. Um, an example for that might be, you know, if you were going to go on a Jack the Ripper tour, um, you would visit the, uh, the various scenes 
but you know that in a way that's hard history um, if you uh, that's the unofficial history would be otherwise unrecorded perspectives from people at the time or subsequently um, but those are not being accessed by the psychogeographer who is a privileged person um, there is a a book whose title I will add in the postscript um, which actually talks about um, the habit of wandering around cities uh, highlighting the fact that this is um, by definition something that uh, privileged people white people men do um, you do not get people who are potentially under threat undertaking similar practices and I remember a friend of mine I was talking to them about um, walking around the woods and uh, I was saying well you know the, in a way the worst that I'm likely to come across might be a, a, an angry dog or a or a grumpy bull those you know those would be my my worst possible cases um, and if I got lost I might get shouted at a bit by um, by a landowner so those are real dangers but no, I have manageable ones. Whereas she was saying that from her point of view, as soon as she was on her own in the countryside, she would not feel secure enough to go somewhere that she wasn't absolutely sure that she was uh, safe and allowed to be there. So there is an element of privilege that's part of the... Um, settings. So yeah, so in a way, um, you know, psychogeography is, a, is something that for all its uh, pretensions to being um, a bottom-up process, um, which is accessing the counterculture, um, it is being practiced by people who uh, enjoy substantial status within the um, formal cultural sphere um, so that's you know uh, like a paradox that's built in um, so um, that's how I'll come back to this another time I'm walking along a turnpike road coming up to the site of uh, one of the turnpike gates um, and it's one of the few occasions it's the only occasion really Carmarthen became famous to history uh, in the context of the Rebecca riots in, uh, uh, in 1847 and there were various sites within half a mile of here, mile of here um, which saw the, uh, the high point of uh, that program of civil unrest and I'll uh, return to that another time but just to say I'm, just to say I'm coming up now to um, the bottom of the hill 
top of which is the Picton Monument. If you've ever driven past Carmarthen, you'll have seen the Picton Monument. So, uh, about, well, I guess I would say it's 80 feet, 30 meters high. <laughs> Obelisk. It's actually the second version, and the earlier version was uh, smaller. But it was erected after the Battle of Waterloo um, to commemorate uh, the General Pickson, who was one of the commanders of the British Army in the Peninsula War, and he died at well, sorry, died at Waterloo. Um, So the other part thing I wanted to talk a bit, must explain a bit about who I am and why I'm doing this. Um, I'm an archaeologist by training, worked as an archaeologist for nearly 20 years. Um, I've always been interested, more interested in the post-Roman history and archaeology of uh, of Britain than the earlier stuff um, and so I've spent a lot of time walking around landscapes uh, trying to understand their current layout and how they developed um, through combination of uh, field observation uh, looking at map work uh, a bit of historical work using primary documents uh, and using historical narratives. So, for example, one project I did when I was an archaeologist was in the 90s, the, uh, the government first became concerned about potential impacts of um, climate change on, on the country um, and in particular they were worried about um, trying to define a policy for their sea defences, um, deciding what needed protecting and what didn't. Uh, so Essentially, they were thinking in terms of um, significantly strengthening um, sea defences to protect the key economic asset. To do that, they needed to have some idea of uh, important archaeological sites might be at risk, which might need protecting in some way. And alongside that, what archaeological sites might be affected if they decided to put in some protection for other reasons. For example, if they decided to build a, or renew the seawall between Cardiff and Newport, which they eventually did, uh, what sites would be affected by them doing that. So yeah, so that was the, and part of that really was I was, the company I was working for was commissioned to undertake a survey of known and unknown archaeological sites, high watermark um, and a strip about 100 metres inland. So basically, we need to see what was there. And after we've collated the information about the, about the 
already known sites, I then uh, walked along the high water line all the way from Swansea to uh, Chepstow, which is about 100 miles. I, uh, I didn't do it in one go, I did it in bits and bobs. Um, so each day doing a circular walk of about what, 10 miles, um, looking out for, say, known sites and new sites, um, including things like uh, shipwrecks which are washing out of the, of the beach or where the cliff tops are actively eroding. Uh, falling back and in the process exposing um, burial graves and, uh, and of course there are, some, there are a series of um, INH hill forts along the, the northern coast uh, occupying the, uh, the coastline there and these are recognised as naturally important and they are actively eroding, so in a matter of time. Anyway, so as I say, just as an example of having done that a lot, that's now my default mode when I'm walking around the place, because I'm looking at the buildings, thinking about how old they are, who put them there, whether they've been adapted or whether they were in their original form. Um, indications there are of any earlier land use, um, and so on. Uh, so that's sort of how I see the, the artificial environment. Another part of that also is to do with land management, so that, as I said before, that the fields were pasture. That's true, that they don't just sit there, they're actively managed by the farmers to look that way. That's particularly important with the best manicured bits of land, like uh, Upland Moor, where Upland Moor, where it appears as if there is no management at all going on, but uh, the current vegetation is not, not actually stable without a series of specific interventions. The book I mentioned is by Lauren Elfin, talking about uh, talking about the unrecognised tradition of female uh, psychogeography, which has tended to be obscured by the more vocal male proponents. Mm -hmm.